0: Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. I want to thank those of you that have written in to Charlie, the volunteer whose email I'm going to give you in a moment, who collects your suggestions, your resources, your interesting articles that can help us develop our program. And indeed, The first item on our program today comes from one of you, and so I want to give you Charlie's email again, for those of you who didn't note it down before, to use it. Charlie, usual spelling, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Today's program is going to delve into the Social Security system and how you might be surprised by the way it works as a subsidy for white people, given to them at their expense by black people. It is something I did not know before, even though I study the subject, and so I'm going to share that with you. And it comes from a listener who put me on to this story. We're also going to talk about a poll of young Americans, 18 to 34, whose results will surprise you. We're going to talk about rising interest rates in Europe, and what light it sheds on the process of raising interest rates here in the United States. And then we're going to talk about a very important set of activities undertaken by two celebrities, Taylor Swift in one area and Coco Golf in another. Okay, let's jump right into it. I want to thank Max Millard, who sent us the following basic information. This is something you should have thought of, I should have, but I didn't, and maybe you didn't either. We have an average life expectancy in the United States, at least as of 2021, of 76.1 years. That's what we can expect to live if you're born nowadays, okay? But it turns out, which anyone paying attention could have known, That it's not the same for white people as it is either for African Americans or for the indigenous folks that still remain among us, what we used to call American Indians or Native Alaskans. And here's why that matters white people tend to live a good bit longer than black people. And here's what that means, and it's even more longer relative. To indigenous folks. It means that when you retire these days around age 67, the number of years you're going to collect Social Security is much higher than the number of, if you're white, than it is if you're black, or than it is if you're an indigenous person, because you're living longer. So we all put in the same percentage of our incomes Into the social security system from the time we start working until age 67. We all put in the same percentage a white person, a black person earning the same money puts in the same amount. But when retirement comes, here's the difference so you understand how significant it is. An average white person will collect $195,500. $195,000 195000 for the rest of their lives from Social Security. A black person will collect $81,000 for the rest of their lives, not even half. White and black put in together, white takes out way more than black. So in effect, the black folks are putting more into Social Security than they get out and white people are putting in less than they get out. That's how it works. So the next time someone says there's institutionalized racism in the United States, social security is one way and one place where that happens all day, every day. It is an injustice. And there are, among us, people who know it, saw it, and have various proposals to deal with it, one of which you might want to think about, which is giving Social Security in an amount that takes into account longevity. How many years you're likely to live, so that in one community you get a different amount of money than another, not just because you put in different amounts, or you may have worked longer years, but because you are part of a community whose longevity Is different from other parts. I want to turn next to a recent poll, the results of which were published in Teen Vogue magazine on September 12th of this year. And it was a poll conducted by the Change Research Organization in late August of this year among U.S. young people aged 18 to 34. The results of this poll are extraordinary, and I want to go through some of the more important ones with you. First, out of the folks polled, 43% identify as male, 45% identify as female, and the remaining 12% identify as trans, non-binary, or other. Keep that in mind. First of all, Look at the size of the people for whom male and female is no longer how they identify. Progressives were asked, do you think of yourself as progressive? Among men, 24% felt they were progressive. Among women, 41%. And among trans and non-binary, 75%. Wow. How many were MAGA Trumpers? Here we go. Among men, 29%. Among women, 14%. Among trans non-binary, 3%. Now we can understand why the MAGA folks like to go after the trans people. I don't know who started that, but there's no love lost between those two. Now that may not surprise you, but 12% of the young people identify in that group, and that's going to have enormous effects when they go to vote. And that's interesting too. Here comes that result. 79% of people in that age group say they will definitely vote in 2024. Compare that to the number who voted in May of last year. 65%, who had voted in October of last year, 67%. An enormous increase in voting by these young people whose composition and attitudes I've just summarized. And now the last thing I found amazing. Biden, the Democrats, and much of the punditry in this country refer to the U.S. economy as, quote, in great shape, and then wonder to themselves why the mass of people don't feel that way, never asking the question, maybe the problem is not with the people who feel that way, but with you in imagining that the economy is great, since I, for one, as a professional economist, would say whatever the opposite of great is, that's what the U.S. economy looks like. But I'm not alone. Here we go with U.S. young people aged 18 to 34. 66% of them are not confident that they will ever be able to afford retirement. 63% are convinced they'll never be able to afford having their own home. And another 63% say that if they lost, their job and lost income for three months, they'd be completely dead broke. Wow. Of course, an economy with that kind of attitude of its people is not doing the job. It isn't great. And people are not wrong or weird or strange for thinking so. The European Central Bank, that's the institution that does for Europe what the Federal Reserve does here in the United States, recently raised interest rates from 3.75 to 4 percent. Why? Because they have an inflation. Theirs is 6 percent, whereas ours is 3.5 to 4 percent. So they've got it worse. And the United Kingdom, perhaps worst of all. And you know what they're doing? well, you won't be surprised. They're raising interest rates. Wow. You respond to an inflation that hurts working people because of the rising cost of food, clothing, and shelter by raising interest rates, which means your response to the inflation of goods and services is to inflate the cost of credit, because that's what raising an interest rate does. It adds To the burden of higher prices by adding the higher cost of borrowing money for college, for your credit card, for your automobile purchase, and everything else. It's fundamentally unjust to the victims of inflation to fix the inflation that way. So why aren't the Europeans doing what they have done in the past? Wage and price controls. Wage and price freezes. Incomes policies, as they've been called. Why not? Because the same conservatives who are doing all the other kinds of damage to Europe are doing it in the realm of economic policy, fixing the problems they cause by making them worse. And don't be fooled when employers tell you they're raising prices because their costs are going up. That means the employer class wants you to have sympathy for it. Because some m- members of the class are raising prices, which is then the excuse for other members of that class to do the same. Employers raising prices to one another means, in the end, you're screwing the worker because they can't raise their prices. They're stuck in wage and other kinds of contracts for years at a time and don't have any flexibility. So it's clearly a class policy, which inflation always was it's just folks didn't want to face the reality the last update we have time for today i want to give a shout out first to taylor swift spectacularly successful singer just finished what she called the eras tour around the world unprecedented audiences in size and enthusiasm in the revenue it generates well she's made a movie about that tour, which is about to open and is expected to raise even more excitement and money. That meant she had to work normally through the association of film studios, but they're on strike and she did not want to break the strike. So she went to the union, worked out an acceptable arrangement with the union to release the film without going through the employers, and paying the people who made the film what the union is asking the employers to pay, not what they're offering. Solidarity from a celebrity with the labor movement. And finally, I want to shout out Coco Goff, the young sensation who won the U.S. Tennis Open. When a group of activists in the Extinction Rebellion climate change movement rose among the spectators and said, let's save the climate so we can have tennis in the future rather than lose it, she made a point against the police in the stadium. Leave them alone. Let them make their statement. They have the right to be heard. They are peaceful. There's another celebrity going out of her way to show where young people are politically here and now. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us. An exciting interview with a strike tracker, Mike Elk. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's Economic Update. I'm very happy to bring back to our microphones and our camera Mike Elk. Let me introduce him to you for those that do not already know him. Mike Elk is an Emmy nominated labor reporter, an alumni of The Guardian. He was born and raised in a Pittsburgh union family and started. Payday Report, the first regular publication tracking the strike wave as his event that brought him to the attention of folks like us. He started it, as he reports, using the settlement he got because he was illegally fired for union organizing back in 2015. He lives and works from his hometown of Pittsburgh, PA. So, first of all, thank you, Mike Elk, for joining us.
1: It's great to be on the show again, Professor Wolf.
0: Well, I want to begin by what is, no question, the big event drawing everyone's attention, not just here in labor circles, but across the United States and indeed around the world. And that is the strike of the auto workers, United Auto Workers, roughly 150,000, if I have my numbers right, against the three companies that we call the big three. General Motors, Ford, and what used to be known as Chrysler, but is now known as the conglomerate Stellantis. So here's what I would like you to address. Where did this come from? Why is this huge strike happening? What's at stake? And where do you think it's going? Well,
1: the strike obviously happened because, you know, since the bailout of the auto industry in the late 2000s, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, the auto industry used the bailout to implement two-tier wage systems, to have people starting at $16 an hour, to have people working as temps for years. So the auto conditions, uh, in terms of workers, have gotten very bad since the auto bailout nearly 14 years ago. But now, the auto companies are doing well, and the leadership of the UAW is pushing back uh, and fighting back and going out on strike. Uh, right now, we're seeing the beginning of a small strike that could possibly grow. Um, where the UAW has chosen to go on strike at a final assembly plant of Chrysler, uh, Stellantis, and Ford, one each of, each of the big three. And it remains to be seen how much they will expand it or if it will target strategic auto suppliers. But the strike is, at the very least, very symbolic, uh, and it is a threat of perhaps a broader strike. Uh, and so we're seeing now that strike occur. It's occurring at the same time that the leadership of the UAW just changed. the first time in the 80-year history of the UAW, the incumbent administration was voted out. This happened after most of the previous leadership of the UAW went to jail for embezzling money. Uh, The federal government got involved, they implemented a consent decree, and they implemented a system where every union member could vote on president, not just the delegate. So what winded up happening is you have a new president, and that's Sean Fain. He won by about 400 votes out of 130,000. And so Fain is trying to very much consolidate his base in a divided union. Uh, and so this strike is very important for the new leadership of UAW. So you've seen profits soar while wages haven't kept up. And you're also seeing a different UAW that is promising to be more militant. Now, how militant remains to be seen. Uh, initially, um, the you know Sean Fain said that if on September 14th, if the contracts weren't met, that they would all go out on strike. Clearly, they didn't do that. They only went out at three different locations, one at each of the big three. So it remains to be seen at this moment whether or not they will escalate, uh, whether or not they will go after key suppliers. Now, in the midst of this, uh, the Biden administration is very, very, very involved. The Biden administration has invested $15 billion in converting auto suppliers to making electric vehicle parts. Invested more than $15 billion. It's a huge election year project of Biden. It's tens of thousands of jobs in the Midwest. And the Biden administration has publicly stated in the Washington Post and in other publications that they're worried about the effect that this could have on auto supply throughout the Midwest. Uh, as of this recording, uh, the Biden administration is trying to prepare active aid measures. So obviously, you know, we in coming weeks will see whether or not this will be a strike that will be a militant, that will be. They'll be uh, you go on for some time, but whether this will be settled quickly, the UAW is reporting that they're having productive talks at Ford, and perhaps by the time this goes to air in a week or two, maybe they have settled. But this is certainly part of it. At a moment, we're seeing a lot of labor militancy in this country. You saw 160,000 active members of SAG-AFTRA go out. You saw 12,000 writers go out. We've seen Hollywood on strike all summer. We saw 2,000 workers at Wabtec between teachers in various cities, we have teachers right now going on sick-out strikes in Las Vegas. Uh, you're seeing people all over the country are striking and taking action. And this is happening at a time at which workers are getting overwhelming public support for their strikes. I think the strikes in Hollywood have crystallized on how much people on social media, as well as even journalists, really like and are sympathetic to a lot of these strikes. Obviously, there have been some trade publications that haven't always written the best stuff. But if you look at social media, uh, Margie Margot Robb, who did Barbie, has been very vocal and supportive. Uh, that hasn't been going viral. Um, when Drew Barrymore tried to cross the ticket line, she was blasted on social media. She wasn't able to do it. Um, so we're in a moment right now where there is mass public support. Uh, I think there's a willingness to push the envelope. I think with the, the UAW strike, We're obviously going to see how far they're willing to push the envelope. They blinked at first. Instead of taking out all 150 factories in the three big three, they only took out three. But perhaps by recording time, by by time this goes, but perhaps by time this goes to press, they will have taken out some more locations. So we'll see how militant that can get. Uh, Let's not forget that earlier this summer, the Teamsters talked a very good game about wanting to go on strike at UPS and then they settled the contract um, a week before the deadline expired. Why did that happen? The Biden administration got involved. So even though these labor leaders promised to be militant, uh, you know, the Biden administration is sitting down negotiating deals. The Biden administration blocked the railroad strike. Uh, the Biden administration got involved in the West Coast ports and negotiated a settlement. Uh, the Biden administration got involved in the UPS and negotiated a settlement. And now the Biden administration is trying to get the UAW to take a softer approach so that they don't wreck their plans in the auto supplier industry. It remains to be seen how much the UAW is willing to buck them. Sean Payne, the president of the UAW, has said that the White House is scared of this strike, has made noise that the the union may not endorse Biden. However, they chose after the White House intervened, they chose not to initially go after suppliers that Biden didn't want them to target. So we're going to see really clear, I think it's going to become clear, in this auto worker struggle, how far the Biden administration is willing to go, and what role the Biden administration may be playing blocking more militant action. We've certainly seen the Biden administration block strikes on the railroad, the ports, and prevent a strike at UPS as well. And now they're involved in the UAW. So it's certainly a very interesting moment. And how this strike settles, I think, is going to set a pattern for whether or not other unions feel uh, engaged and bold to go
0: take further action on this. Mike, I want to ask you a question that I know is in the minds of much of our audience because of the emails and and contacts we have with our audience. It seems to most people that labor is moving in the United States, whether it is trying to unionize or it is on the strikes that your publication tracks in a way that we haven't seen for decades. Comparisons are made with the 1930s as a heyday of labor organizing and labor militancy. If you agree, as I think you do, what in your mind, from what you've seen, how would you explain that? How would you, if you were a teacher in a classroom and a a student raised his or her hand, what would you say is why this is happening now?
1: Well, I think if you if you read American history, after any period of great collective sacrifice, and we're just coming out of a period of collective sacrifice after the pandemic, when millions of essential workers were forced to work, and many of them died, whether it's after the Civil War or after World War II, anytime you ask average working class people to risk their lives to maintain the system, to maintain the country, they have always asked for more from society. Uh, and this certainly has happened in you know with essential workers a lot of these people were told that they were essential during the pandemic they worked through the pandemic friends of theirs died many got sick and now folks are asking for a lot more and i think it's coming at a time when the media is a lot more receptive there's been a lot of union organizing in the media sector uh, we've seen hollywood a lot more receptive so i think you know it's 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 coming at a time when workers are feeling more emboldened after the pandemic Media is very receptive to it, and I think folks want to see more.
0: Wow. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your publication, Payday Report. and By that, I mean, how have workers responded now that there's a publication like yours that recognizes the importance of what a strike is? It is a kind of ultimate weapon of workers to withhold their labor upon which this system depends. And I I was just wondering what kinds of insights you you may be able to say you acquired by taking the strike movement seriously in the way that your publication does.
1: Well, I think, um, you know, we found a payday report after I was legally fired for union organizing at Politico in 2016. Uh, you can see that we're funded by crowd fund, You know, we're funded by crowdfunding and by our readers. So we're able to cover stories that maybe big foundations aren't interested in, or big rich folks aren't interested in, uh, that our readers are interested in. And we've had an effort to, to crowdsource strikes. We've tracked over three thousand strikes since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and why we started doing that was that we could see an uptick in strikes. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics only tracks strikes in workplaces with more than a thousand workers, which isn't very many workplaces today. So we started tracking them and we were really changed the conversation. Uh, The New York Times started citing us, the Washington Post, The Economist. Um, And this was just funded by regular readers because even the corporate media does listen and and is held accountable by the voices of independent media. The corporate media often has to play catch up. I mean, we're seeing our reporting on what happened with the Biden administration now being copied by publications like Bloomberg. Uh, We saw our efforts to track strikes being copied by Cornell and now being copied by Bloomberg. They both have strike trackers. Uh, And the AFL-CIO has one as well. So, you know, our role as a media publication that's crowdfunded and people who want to donate, go to paydayreport.com, slash donate, we will take your donation. Um, Our role has been able to show the mainstream media what they're missing and where they should be going. Essentially, we've been leading breadcrumb in the forest so that some of these reporters can find their way. And that is the important role of the independent media. And I think, you know, our ability to crowdfund it and to track these strikes shows how interested workers are, how workers got places like The New York Times uh, to cite our material because it was funded so much. So we really rely on workers. And we really encourage folks to go to our website, paydayreport.com, and sign up and donate. We'll use your money to cover these big strikes of auto workers, cover Hollywood, I so much more.
0: You know, I I'm reminded of the conversations that I have, and I suspect that's what's going on with Payday Report too, that people have felt disempowered, isolated, lonely, unable to do something about a deteriorating situation. And if you give them some way, send five bucks, uh Sign up over here, put your signature on a petition. It's a chance to be less powerless than you've been feeling for quite a while now. And I think the labor movement is picking up that one of the areas where we all know very well we need help is in the jobs we have, the incomes we earn, the conditions we live under. I wish as always that we had more time, Mike Elk, but I want to tell everyone I've learned a lot from Payday Report. We are all in your debt for producing that kind of activity and letting us know. So to you, thank you. And to my audience, think about what you've heard today and share it with the people around you. And as always, I look forward to talking with you again next week.